Good morning, Highland. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And if you're here, as uh, Matt said at the beginning, because it's time for a fresh start, it's a new year, you're going to show up at church, you're going to see what's here, we're glad you're here. If you are here because you're back from uh, Christmas break and you're ready to jump into a new semester, you got those syllabi lied out in front of your desk, it's like a clean slate, you haven't missed one quiz yet, you haven't slept through yet, good for you, we're glad you're here. Um, and if you're here because you're with us online, uh, it's good to have you uh, to be a part. We're starting a new series uh, called Origin Story, and we're going to be looking through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That's the first book in your Bible. And I want to encourage you this week and over the next few weeks, sit down and try to read those first 11 chapters. It's not very long. There's some weird stuff that happens in there. There's like lists of who begat who begat who that are in there. But there's also this fascinating story about God's love for humanity. And so as you're reading uh, over the next few weeks, reading your Bible, jump to Genesis and read what's there as we discover our story. I mean, every, every story has a beginning, but, but this, this is the beginning of every story. And, and we have to kind of know what to do with with, with creation narratives, right? I want us to think about it in terms of Western films. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, if you don't know who that is, that's a filmmaker. I'm not making any recommendations of any of his films, but uh, he's a fascinating filmmaker, and he loves movies. When he was a kid, he would sneak in. He didn't care what was playing. If he didn't have money, he would lie and cheat his way into that theater so that he could watch movies. But one of his favorite genres of movies were Westerns. And I was listening to this interview with him on NPR, and he was talking about Western movies. And he said that Westerns are a unique movie genre in that they tend to reflect the, the culture of the time more, most clearly. And so I want you to think about that. He kind of walked uh, the, the, the audience through it. In the 1950s, you know, Westerns were very popular, and that was an era of like kind of suburban optimism in America. And the kind of Westerns that you saw in the 50s were these kind of John Wayne Westerns, where the good guys wore white hats, the bad guys wore black hats, and the good guys always won. It was an era of optimism, and we knew what was right, and we knew what was good, and we knew how to get there. In the 1960s, that kind of changed for the American ethos because there was kind of a growing awareness of racial bigotry. There was the conflict that was happening in Vietnam. And the hero kind of changed from John Wayne to Clint Eastwood. And you can think of A Few Dollars More, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, where the, the hero of the story is not quite as pure and clean as they were before. If you move into the 1970s, now this is the era of kind of Watergate, and there was kind of a growing distrust for establishments and authority, and it led to these Westerns that talked about tearing down the things that we've built, that the problem is not necessarily good or evil and the conquering of, of, of evil, rather it's the institutions that are the problem. It's the institutions that need to be rebuilt. And then he pauses and he says, and you know, I think the best Western that's been written in the last 15 or 20 years that best describes our kind of societal place is no country for old men, which is a disturbing Western if you've ever seen it. And it kind of reflects that existential angst that we face an incomprehensible evil. So what I want to submit to you today is that origin stories do what Westerns 
do. And it doesn't matter where the origin story is. If it's in a comic book, if it's in a movie, if it's how a superhero gained their powers, if it's why a villain is evil, it doesn't matter. But that story reflects the time that it was written in. And so I want us to be careful as we turn to Genesis 1 that we pay attention and we ask the right questions. Genesis 1 is a story about a creation of, of, of a place. It's, it's about making a space in the universe, right? And it's, you can't read it asking the wrong questions. For instance, if you know the order of the creation, it, it begins by creating light. <coughs> Excuse me. But, but the sun and the moon and the stars aren't created on the first day. They're created on the fourth day. And before the sun is created, sky is created. There's this space that's made between the waters above and the waters below. And then on the third day, the earth is created. Dry land is kind of scooped out. God makes a space for dry land, and then vegetation grows. And then on the fourth day, the sun is made. And on the fifth day, fish and birds are made. And on the sixth day, land animals and humanity is laid, made. And this doesn't make a lot of sense if you're asking the wrong question. This isn't describing maybe what we think it is. Because there's a connection between day one and day four. When God creates light on day one, he creates stars and sun and the moon to govern that light. On day two, when he creates the air and the water, he creates birds and fish to live, exist in that water. And on day three, when he creates dry land, he creates the animals and humanity to exist there. He is creating spaces, and then he's allowing things to flourish within those spaces. Genesis is written in a pre-Copernican and pre-Darwinian context. So this poem, and it is a poem, you notice the rhythm that it has, day and night, day one, day and night, day two, isn't going to answer some of the questions we might throw at it. But it tells us two important things, who God is and who we are. And you intuitively know this true already. If you were to open up your British or ancient uh, literature textbook and you were to read the poem Ode uh, to a Grecan Urn, which is a beautiful poem, it does not tell you how to assemble a Grecan Urn. And if you try to use that poem to build a Grecan Urn, you're going to fail miserably, right? Because that's not what it's intended to do. On the other hand, I love the artists at Ikea who paint those very clear uh, pictures that make me incredibly frustrated about how to build a, uh, a bookshelf. That does one thing very clearly. It tells me how to build a bookshelf. It does not tell me the meaning of life. It's not fair to ask those Ikea illustrators to answer those questions. It's not fair to ask a poet to answer how to build an urn. But it does tell us who God is and who we are. Now, there are other texts that address what you're asking. Well, how do we know how the world was created? Well, that's in Colossians chapter 1. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, things invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what I want us to do is set the story of creation in context, like that Western movie. See, Genesis is making claims about the supremacy of Yahweh in the ancient Near East. He's making claims about the high God Yahweh. 
that our God is better than your God. Our God is bigger than your God. In fact, your God's not really a God at all. Because other religions will worship trees and suns and stars. Well, you know what our God did? Yahweh created all those things. There's even my favorite little line, and it's subtle. You're going to miss it. But it's this little dig against the Babylonians, right? Because, because the people in Israel knew the stories of creation from Egypt and Samaria and, and Babylon. There's this little mention where God creates the Leviathan. And that's often translated as whales. It's a big sea serpent, right? And you can pass right by it. It's just God makes it. It moves on. Well, that's not the Babylonian story. The Babylonian story is that Marduk, their high god, wrestles Tiamat, which is like the sea servant. It's the Leviathan. Then he tears Tiamat in half, rips jaw to jaw, and uses half of Tiamat to create the sky, the other half to take the, create the universe, or the, sorry, the ground, and that's how the world's created. Well, Genesis says, you know who created the Leviathan? Yahweh. An origin story is an act of political and cultural resistance. At a time when Israel is held captive in Babylon, when they no longer have sovereignty and they no longer have authority, they no longer have the ability to make the decisions that they want, and they're being influenced by an outside force that's saying, well, you know how the world is made. And they're being very tempted to say, yeah, I want to believe that because it looks like you guys are in power Our origin story tells us, no. No, it's God. But what is God making, actually? What is God creating? Because the rhythm of this text is a little unusual. It doesn't make sense to Western ears. Even the timing, it is evening, morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day. (coughs) And that's not how we would say it. For most of us, we wake up in the morning and we go to work and we, we give our best effort in the morning and then we come home from work, we relax, and we get ready for bed. And that's how it works. It's morning and evening and go to bed. Morning and evening and go to bed. But that's not how God works. As you are going to sleep, as you are winding down, that's the moment when God begins. And God works that first shift all through the night so that when we wake up, we're ready to join God in what God is already doing. God creates a universe that's incredibly large. Most of the universe, humanity will never see and never experience. It is purely for God's own good pleasure that it exists. And who knows, I bet you there are parts of the earth itself that humanity has not yet seen and is still waiting to explore. But God made a space for life to flourish. And there's two senses in where this life flourishes. It's one is in biodiversity. All of the different kinds of plants and animals and fish and birds and all of the different colors that you see and all of the different sounds that you see. There's a million different things that God has done, a billion different ways that God can express life, and he did them all. And he made this space so it can exist. And if the space needs to be as big as the universe, then so be it. That's one way to understand the flourishing of God in creating this space. But, but that's not the only way of flourishing. It's not just diversity, it's meaning. That God created a planet, a place, so that you could write poetry. 
to impress someone else, to express how you feel. God made a place so that you could create a song that had never been sung before, that no one in in the history of, of creation had ever heard before, that God creates this space, not just so that we can experience the flourishing of life, but the meaning and the depth of our existence. What I think is happening in these seven days is that God is building a temple. You know, in, in, in Samuel and Kings, there's the story of, of David wanting to build a temple for God. David has a beautiful palace, and he says, God, you have no home. God says, I don't need a home, but you're not going to be the one that builds the temple. And then Solomon builds it, and it's this beautiful place. It's ornate. It's wonderful. It's massive. And as they're ordaining the temple for God's presence, they admit in the prayers, God, there is no way that this contain you. There's no way that this can hold you. Your home is the universe, and this is just one little spot in it, and we admit that we cannot have any ability to do anything other than what you want. What God is creating in the universe is a temple. And it's only the universe that is a temple worthy of God. But but humanity is God's crowning achievement. Humanity is the last thing that God makes. It's the only thing that's imago Dei. But, but that's not the end of the story. In the same way that humanity is, is, is like God, we're going to make something special. What God turns around promptly do to, and then rests, and he makes a day that's special. You can draw a straight line between the holiness of humanity and the holiness of the Sabbath. We are the only thing that's created in the image of God. And in that moment of Sabbath, when God sits to rest, it's not because God is tired. It's not because God wants to, like, lay out in the field and watch the butterflies. God sits to reign. Creation begins the moment. It creates the space where God can rule. I mean, you can imagine the building of, say, a university, A hundred years ago, it's founded, and over the course of time, the buildings are built and the structures are laid, and sometimes there's crazy construction happening all over campus, and and you see the cranes, and it's a mess, and there's disorder, but then out of that disorder comes something ordered. The buildings are beautiful and architecturally pleasing to the eye, and they have all sorts of useful function and purpose, but none of that matters until the students come in. I don't know if you've ever gone up to Hardin-Simmons or ACU or, or McMurray over Christmas break or in the summer. The place feels odd. It feels wrong because the students aren't there. And so he creates an image, and he calls it man and woman. And we can ask a lot of questions about what is would mean to be the image of God. What does it mean to, to bear the image of God. And there's lots of answers, but I think the best thing that we can say is that we have been God, given God's imagination, that our words create the same reality the same way that God does. You can make up a sentence right now that has never been spoken again before in the history of the world. You can make it out of nothing. That's the same thing that God can do. Uh, somebody else said that you are the signature at the bottom of God's masterpiece. You are the thing in God's work that looks like him. And so our purpose is to live as we are created, live as image bearers in the Imago Dei. And so our task that we're given in Genesis 1 is to to subdue the earth and everything in it and to be fruitful and multiply. 
So let's talk about that first task for a minute. What does it mean to subdue? I read this week this fascinating story about uh, Peruvian villagers. If you don't know, Peru is like the sixth largest gold producer in the world right now, but it's a pretty small place. And when they discovered gold there about 40 years ago, it kind of created this land rush where everybody wanted to get in and, and grab those minerals, exploit that. Now, Peru doesn't have the same kind of EPA regulations that uh, other places in the world do. And so a lot of that exploration and mining has kind of destroyed the environment. The forests that used to be there, those primeval forests and the, the rain, rainforests that have been there have all just been cut away to do strip mining. But the villagers that were there before have tried to put up a fight. You know, mining companies will accidentally dump uh, thousands of tons of mercury into the soil. It leaches it, it poisons it, it kills it. And those villagers are trying to fight back. So when we're talking about it, what it means to subdue the earth, do you think that God's talking about the mining companies? Meaning to conquer it, dominate it, or at worst, pillage it? Or do you think that God is thinking more about the villagers? That maybe subduing means to, to own it. Not in the sense of property, but in the sense of responsibility. To invest in it to tie your stories to the earth around you. It's like Wendell Berry's profound essay, What Are People For? Part of the answer is to live in the context of the earth, the dirt that you're around. The world that God created was, was good, but the relational character of God allowed the room and the space for a relationship to flourish. The, the world that God created was not static, but it's unruly, and it's wild, and it's, sometimes it's dangerous. And we're supposed to explore this world, to check it out, to have an adventure in it. And maybe this exploration doesn't take you anywhere. Maybe it's as simple as connecting a few words together, or designing a piece of software that nobody's made before, or knitting a hat, or just making up a story for your kids at bedtime. Every one of us is in the image of God. Now, Colossians tells us that Jesus is the best image of God. If you want to know what God looks like, what God thinks, or how God acts, then look at Jesus. But I think you can also see a reflection in God's people. In the same way that God created the universe to be the temple, the dwelling place where God will rule, God created us as a people to be another kind of temple. A place where the world can go and say, I want to know what God looks like. I want to know how godly activity plays out in a community. Well, that's us. And I think this shapes everything. This shapes um, our decisions and it shapes our ethics. It shapes how we spend our money. It shapes how we treat each other. It shapes how we deal with one another's gifts. It lines all of those things out because we're no longer for ourselves, but rather the reflection of God. This is why Highland is so seriously committed to restoring Abilene and restoring the world. This is the beginning of all stories because fundamentally we're all tied to that same creation. It doesn't matter if someone else is living in a different story. This story, the story of God loving people, God who took an incredible risk to make a place and a people who have the incredible opportunity to love him back, is the beginning of every other story. When God made you, God made you very good. 
And you have a lot of the same qualities as your father. You have his gait. You have his smile. You have his laugh. You are the image of God. What we want to do now is allow you to enter into the the experience of Genesis chapter 1 in in maybe a, a refined way. We've We've created a transliteration of this story to embody it, and I've asked Donna Hester to read that and, and to come in and experience this together. Let's, let's live inside of Genesis 1 for a minute as Donna tells this story. Every story has a beginning, but this is the beginning of every story. In this beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything you can see and everything you can't see. The earth was a bottomless nothingness, an inky blackness, a deafening roar of silence. And God's spirit hovered over the abyss. And God spoke one word, light and light appeared. It cut through the darkness and gave shape to the void. Light made nothing, something. Light made a space in the darkness where we could be. God saw the light was good. God named the light day and the dark night. It was evening, it was morning, day one. And God spoke Make an airy space in the waters. An estuary of air separated the waters above from the waters below. And God named the space Sky. Sky made a space in the waters where there could be life. It was evening. It was morning, day two. And God spoke. Gather and order the waters under the sky to make a space. It was so. God named the dry space Earth and gathered the waters into seas. God marked the waters and said, Here and no higher. God saw that it was good. Then God made vegetation all over the earth plum trees and blue bonnets, prickly pears and palm trees, giant sequoias and prairie grass, trees that would turn from green to yellow to orange to red. And the world was filled with color, and God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day three. And God spoke, heaven, be filled with lights. And God set stars in the vault of the sky, a big light to govern the day and little lights to govern the nights. And the cosmos was filled with the deep thrumming of billions and billions of stars. And the universe began to tick-tock, tick-tock days and nights and seasons and years and millennia and eons and God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day four. And God spoke oceans, sky, 
be filled with life. And the sea was full of fish and the sky was full of birds and the world was filled with songs. Music of whales swimming in the deep, serenades from nightingales and reveilles from robins and lullabies of barn owls. Even the seagull, who couldn't carry a tune at all, just squeaks and squawks, was part of God's chorus. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. Prosper, fill the sky and the seas. It was evening, it was morning, day five. And God spoke, earth, be filled with life. And the ground was covered with animals, and the cosmos learned to dance. Prancing gazelles and skittering reptiles, swinging monkeys and sashaying skunks, lumbering bison and lazy lions, things that hopped and things that skipped and things that ran and some things that didn't seem to move at all. But God was not done. The grand finale was still to come. God said, let us take one thing and set it apart from the other things. There is a multitude of life, but let's make something special. Let us make human beings bear our image, reflecting our nature, to mark the time of the stars and enjoy the colors of the flowers and the songs of the birds and the dance of the animals. And God saw all the work of creation, and it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, day six. And the heavens, and the earth, and the plants, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the fish, and the birds, and the animals, and even the humans were complete. And God said, let us take one day and set it apart from the other days. There is a multitude of labor, projects, and work but let's make something special. Let us make today bear our image, reflecting our nature, and make it holy. And so God blessed it, sat down, and rested. It was evening, it was morning, 